Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, top of the brand new week, it is the uh, first day that we're back on standard time. Daylight savings time. I don't like it. I don't want it. Crazy alert. I'm going to get to this. Ted Cruz has got a crazy alert. We've had a shocking report about Donald Trump and John Eastman coming out in uh, just a minute. I'll get to that. And also, what if every American's home was a power plant? We'll talk about that. And Art Cohen will be with us. His uh, new book, Trump You. My battle with Donald Trump's fake university is amazing, and he's still got an open criminal complaint against Donald Trump. So we'll hear all about that. So a lot coming up in the program today. So to begin with, our crazy alert, you know, poor Ted Cruz, just, you know, his tidy whities in a wad. I mean, he's all upset because Big Bird came out and said to young kids, hey, it's a good time to get vaccinated. Now you can do it. It's safe. It's legal. And oh my God, Republicans who want to make sure that America stays sick so the economy stays in the tank are all flipped out because, oh my God, Republicans are saying, if, if Biden can get everybody vaccinated, if he can get our schools back to normal, if he can get our workplaces back to normal, then people are going to vote for Democrats in 2022 and 2024. We can't have that. We've got to have chaos. And they don't care who dies to get us there. And by the way, poor Ted, some don't tell him, but here's the headline over at uh, Channel 10, ABC Channel 10 News. Uh, Muppets encourage children to get the COVID vaccine. Right. Big Bird, Elmo, and more Muppets are encouraging them to get vaccinated right across the board. Uh, you know, the whole, the whole Muppets are coming out for them. I'm just waiting for uh, the Republican Party to adopt Pepe Le Pew as their campaign cartoon character mascot. Remember Pepe Le Pew, the skunk who every time a woman got near him, he grabbed her? It's kind of Donald Trump, isn't it? Anyhow, to the, uh, to the real news and, and serious stuff. John Eastman is the guy who came up with the memo that laid out for Donald Trump, basically what I laid out back in March of 2020 when I said, you know, it looks to me like the, what the Trump administration is planning is something very, very similar, if not identical, 
to what happened in the United States in 1876, in the election of 1876, where, where Sam Tilden won the popular vote and won the electoral college vote, but never became president. Instead, the loser, uh, the Republican, Rutherford B. Hayes, became president. And the reason why was because the, the election, there were, there were four states that submitted dual elector, challenge, you know, a, a Tilden elector panel and a Hayes elector panel. There were four states that did this. And as a consequence, the election got thrown into the House of Representatives. Now, I pointed that out in March of last year. John Eastman tried to actually make it happen in January of this year, on January 6th. That was, that was the plan. He lost his, uh, well, he went, he went from there to this right-wing think tank called the Claremont Institute. And it turns out now, you know, this is, there's a great story about this over at rawstory.com. Uh, Travis Getty's writing about it. The headline is, Barely Concealed Bloodlust. Claremont Institute laid out detailed plan for using cops to overturn Trump's election loss. And this goes even a step farther than that. This is like, you know, the whole Turner Diary thing. Uh, the, Turner's di the Turner Diaries um, was this book that came out in the 1970s that is still kind of required reading across the right wingosphere. And uh, uh, certainly with all the militia movements, where there is an attack on a federal building in Oklahoma City, blows up the federal building, kills a bunch of people. Keep in mind, this book came out in the 70s. And... The government, in response to this attack, starts clamping down on people and going door to door and taking people's guns. And all the good white patriots rise up and start killing government officials and in the process also killing black people and Jewish people and Hispanic people and gay people. And basically, you know, at the end of the novel, the government has been overthrown. The dead, the, you know, the, the, the black people and Jews are all dead. And the good white people are standing there on top of the mountain with their guns going, we did it, we took the country back. So this, this book is like, you know, the hero's journey for the hard right. And it's been, like I said, it's been around for a long time. Tim McVeigh read it, and it's what caused him to blow up the Oklahoma City Federal Building, thinking it would start that Turner Diary, you know, meta story. And it didn't, obviously. But what apparently John Eastman did at the Claremont Institute is he, he just came up with something very much like this. This, uh, this is from a, uh, the Bipartisan Transition Integrity Projects uh, exercise, preventing a disrupted presidential election and transition. And, uh, you know, they know to the extent that the Claremont TPPF report offers recommendations, they're mostly focused on how to emerge victorious from the chaos, including preparation for, quote, destructive urban unrest with potential targets including ballot counting facilities, government buildings, especially state capitals and city halls, as well as television and radio studios. The Claremont Task Force seems re either resigned to or perhaps energized by the view that prudent steps are likely to be spun as preparation for a military takeover or coup and may result in negative consequences either way. In fact, in this report, they say, this, the, this one guy, Vanderbrook, he says, this isn't a serious war game or a policy study, so much as a boulderized retelling of the Turner Diaries. It's called 79 Days to Inauguration. And, I mean, this is, this is pretty amazing stuff. 
right? This came out of, apparently, former Trump National Se Deputy National Sec Secretary Ed, uh, Security, excuse me, advisor K.T. McFarlane, as well as Kevin Roberts, then the executive director of the Texas Policy, Public Policy Foundation, and a couple of alt-right figures. Uh, it's being reported over at thebulwark.com. So Trump, part of the plan that the Claremont Institute, uh, John Eastman came up with was to use police and the military to seize our government. I mean, it doesn't get weirder th than this. This is, this is like bizarre and dangerous, dangerous stuff. We know how close they got. How close will we get in 2022 and 2024? Well, really, it'll be 2024. That's, you know, the, the next time they're going to try and game the Electoral College with all these new rules that they've put, 33 new laws in 19 states to allow them to do exactly what those four states did back in 1876 when they threw the election into the House of Representatives. This is the Tom Hartman program. And it's gonna get even weirder if in 2022, the Democrats lose the House, which is pretty high probability right now. I started to talk about this a little earlier. Glenn Youngkin's uh, victory in Virginia has basically made, quote, education the policy issue du jour for Republicans. And, you know, Amanda Marcotte is writing about this over at uh, Salon. She points out the Republican swing in Virginia and New Jersey show the efficacy of a new model of conservative politics appealing to suburban voters by promising greater parental control of schools. Right. That's a quote from the Washington Post. She said, if the public knew what the GOP's demands actually are, banning classic books like Toni Morrison's Beloved or The Handmaid's Tale. Now, why would right-wingers want to ban The Handmaid's Tale in school? Oh, yeah, that's right. It's, it's about a world that, that is like, you know, the, the cult that Amy Coney Barrett grew up in. Amanda Marcotte says, the GOP is repackaging this deeply fascist love for censorship in a friendlier frame of parental rights. She said they got lucky that the Democratic candidate, Terry McAuliffe, blundered into the campaign's closing weeks when he said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach, instead of mounting a robust uh, defense of free speech. Terry McAuliffe had to be like, you know, the worst candidate of the cycle, but what could you say? Anyhow, Republicans, she says, use scare terms like critical race theory and liberals try to draw attention to the list of books Republicans are trying to ban. Uh, she notes it's extremely important for the left to focus on how this supposed fight for education is really a proxy fight over the right's rejection of equality for LGBTQ people and people of color. And there's another aspect of this fight that's been less discussed, how the GOP's war on schools is instigated, organized, and funded by right-wing religious groups whose true agenda is actually opposing the rights of children. Amanda Marcotte talks about how the Christian right has long taken a dim view of raising kids so that they can think for themselves. You know, the old biblical saying, raise up a child in the way he should go and he shall never depart from it. 
Their view is that children should be trained to be obedient and submissive. Amanda writes, under the guise of parents' rights, the Christian right is mainstreaming their hostility to the very idea that children have a right to an education. In this case, the right of a child to have a proper education that teaches critical thinking and intellectual curiosity. Oh, we can't have critical thinking. Critical thinking is where you examine facts and come to conclusions and, you know, judge the veracity of claims. Is the world only 6,000 years old? Is the earth flat? Was the moon uh, landing faked? After all, it was back in the 60s before we even had integrated circuits. Must have been, right? She goes on to say, soon there was a cottage industry promoting the complete subjection of the child's will, usually through relentlessly beating kids, which is minimized through the cutesy word spanking. Right. Anyhow, we'll be back in just a moment. I got to tell you about this, this, uh, this amazing thing that they're doing in Germany that we should do here. Stick around. We'll be right back. Jay in Fairfield, California. Hey, Jay, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I love your show. I went to dinner with my wife's coworkers. They're from a doctor's office. And one of them, you know, he, he just, he, I already knew he was a Q guy. So, he, you know, very hostile, very gullible, it, it seems to me. But he, at dinner, he just F Biden. And then the, the other guy goes, oh, you know, there's, don't worry about that. There's no liberals here. And so since I didn't say anything, I think they, they, they probably already knew I wasn't like a Trumper, which they totally are. You know, but it's like they're ginning up this hostility. It's like they have this attitude, this hostile attitude, like, oh, we just can't wait to start the Civil War kind of thing. You know, I don't really think it'll go all that far, especially yeah. uh, at least I'm hoping in California. You know, we got the California Air Guard and National Guard. So. I don't think it'll go that far, but it is a little bit worrisome, you know. When any political group in the United States starts talking about using violence to achieve political ends, um, we all need to be taking it, A, taking it very seriously, and B, uh, doing something about it. I mean, we just absolutely must. Uh, Jay, thank you for, for sharing that story with us. Harriet, New York City. Hey, Harriet, what's up? I'd like to talk about the racism in this country. I think that white people have to take the initiative today, just like the Black Lives Matter movement this summer and with white people joining in and protesting. I think people took note of it because white people were so much a part of it. I think that if white people were to have a movement like Black Lives Matter for racial equity in this country that other white people would pay more attention and that it would get more traction. I guess what I'm, I think about John Brown and other white people who have taken a proactive step for black people. If there were more people, more white people who were active or in the streets protesting not for black people but against racism that other white people the majority of the people in this country would take note i agree with you harriet it's one of the reasons you know my audience is largely white and it's one of the reasons that i talk the way i do about these issues because if white people were not enforcing white supremacy that that's the 
you know, it's not just racism, it's white supremacy. Uh, white supremacy is the foundation of this country. It was the, you know, this country was literally founded on white supremacy, on the genocide of natives and the enslavement of people from Africa. And it continues to this day. And the mythology that is dearly held within the white community or within the, the racist part of the white community, which is probably half of white people in the United States right now, I think that number diminishes as you get younger and expands as, as you get older. But in any case, the mythology that is embraced by these people is that if whites give up white privilege and allow people of all races, and by the way, we could say, that, had to say the same thing about male privilege, but it's sort of a dis different discussion, but it's kind of the same thing, is that if whites give that up, that they are going to lose something. And what I, what I keep saying is, I don't believe that that's the case. I believe that, that if we can have a multiracial society where people are, you know, to paraphrase King, you know, judged on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin, as cliched as that has become and as much as right-wingers are now using that phrase, but nonetheless, if we can do that, everybody benefits. White people will benefit too. I mean, think of the creative potential that would be unleashed if everybody in this country had equal opportunity. I agree totally. And I think that white people can be proactive in the sense that, for instance, at a Ku Klux Klan rally, white people can infiltrate that. And they can, I'm not sure what they can do, but they can infiltrate it. They can find out about it. They can take certain steps to counter that movement because they can do it undercover. They can go places and do things that black people can't do and that white people can do. And I think that if white people were in the streets and demanding equity for all people, that we would see a serious change in this country if white people could ever forget that there was an issue of white and black and that, that we were all one people and that they saw that the struggles of black people were in their interest and for their rights as well. Because every time black people got something in this country, white people benefited. And they have to see that whatever is in the interest of black people is also in the interest of white people. So they have to fight for that. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Harriet. And you said it very well. I really and truly believe that we're all in this together and we're all human beings here and when we start dividing ourselves by categories uh, whether it's religion or race or gender or nationality when we start dividing ourselves within our country by categories and then using those divisions as political weapons then we all we all become weakened we all lose it damages our country. It damages the, not just the body politic, it damages our ability to be a country. You know, if we're gonna get tribal, it needs to be the tribe of the United States of America, all of us. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. 
We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, my rant today over at my daily rant over at HartmanReport.com is titled, What If Every American's Home Was a Power Plant? And I, I start out by pointing out that, you know, uh, here in little tiny Oregon, a decade ago, the entire state, uh, 300 electric vehicles were purchased. Last year, it was 12,000. They're, they're growing like weeds here. Tesla's the number one uh, brand, uh, you know, uh, with uh, Chevy, the Chevy Bolt, I guess, uh, close behind. And Oregon drivers who have bought electric vehicles are paying about half of what they would pay if they were using gasoline to get to work every day. But what if that home's electricity wasn't just generated in a faraway dam or power plant, but what if it was generated on our own rooftops? The Build Back Better bill is still on hold. It's the, the bigger part of Joe Biden's agenda. And it's got most of the climate change in it, stuff in it. But the BIF bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that got passed on Friday, actually has $73 billion for grid upgrades grades in our power systems. And it creates an agency, a federal agency, that kind of oversees all this. And I see this as having incredible potential. Uh, you know, back in uh, September of, of 2009, I was invited to uh, join uh, Herman Scheer. He was a member of the German parliament. Uh, the two of us gave a presentation, actually we gave back-to-back -back presentations at a conference in Barcelona, Spain. And uh, he told us all about his 100,000 rooftops program, which at that point was well underway in Germany. And he and I had lunch, and he, and he told me at length about this program. Now, this isn't exactly how it got put into place. There were a lot of compromises and a lot of halfway measures, and it was you know, done in different ways in different parts of Germany. But the, the basic idea that he laid out to me over lunch was, was very straightforward. And this was because you know, Germany had just suffered Chernobyl. A lot of Chernobyl radiation ended up in Germany, and Germans were like, get rid of the nuclear power plant. And in fact, they're closing their last one next year. So 
The question was, how do we, how do we replace all that electricity? So here was Scheer's idea. Have the banks loan money to every homeowner that has a, a roof with a south-facing surface, which is you know, probably about half the houses in Germany, maybe more. Have, have the banks loan them enough money to solarize their house, put pe- solar panels on the roof and batteries in the basement? And have, the, have those bank loans be backstopped by the federal German government? So there's no risk to the banks, so they can do it at a very, very, very low interest rate, you know, less than 1%. Then have the electric utilities pay uh, uh, what's called a feed-in tariff. It's actually a, a bonus, basically, to people who are using less electricity or selling electricity back into the utility grid. And that bonus should be equal, more or less, to the monthly payments on the solar system on your roof. So at the end of the five or 10 year mortgage period that it took you f- to pay off your solar system, the utility has given you enough extra money to pay for it, so you get basically a solar system for free. The utility gets a new source of electricity for a lower cost than it would cost them if they built a nuclear power plant. And I'm talking about all the homes that would equal the amount of power that a nuclear power plant creates. It would still be cheaper to solarize houses than to build a nuclear power plant. And they're gonna last for 40, 50 years, even though the mortgage is only five or 10 years. So all these homeowners end up with free electricity basically for the rest of their lives. And you know, as I've told you before, you take a train across Germany, the, the one I regularly take is from Frankfurt to, to Kumbach. It's uh, east to west, or excuse me, west to east. And if I'm sitting on the north side of the train and looking up the hillsides as I go by, you see all these southern uh, facing roofs, and they're all covered with, with solar panels all over Germany. In fact, more than a million homes now have been completely solarized in Germany as a result of uh, Hermann Scheer's program. And it works really, really well. So what I'm saying is we just gave the power industry in this BIF bill $73 billion to modernize their electric transmission systems. How about localizing them as well? We have a long tradition in America from from the 1600s until the 1890s of every house being its own power plant, essentially. Everybody was burning wood. In the 1890s, we started burning coal, but it really wasn't until the 1920s and 1930s that we started using electricity. The first big electric power plants were in the 1890s. Uh, Edison did one in New York City down on Pearl Street, and uh, George Westinghouse did one at uh, Niagara Falls, which he used to electrify the city of Buffalo. That was in 1898, as I recall, or in the late 1890s, anyway. Maybe it was 1896. So, you know, this whole idea of central power generation by one company that owns all the power spreading out to everybody, that, that idea is only about 100 years old. It's relatively modern, relatively recent. Let's go back to the local generation that we had before that by putting rooftop panels on everybody's houses. What this would require is for our utilities to basically change their business model. They would have to go from a business model of, uh, you know, we generate electricity and sell it to you, to we collaborate with you in generating electricity, and we run the smart grid that makes sure that even if your solar panels die, your home still has electricity and just kind of maintain everything working for everybody. And so I'm just, I'm suggesting that people contact their legislators and say, do something like this. 
You know, you, we just allocated $73 billion for the utilities. Let's have them use it to encourage rooftop solar, home solar. And by the way, Germany is at a latitude of Calgary, Alberta. And it's the cloudiest country in Europe. And they, they could pull this off in Germany successfully. We can do this here. So, you know, I'm saying, you know, we need to, we need to tell our legislators, hey, it's time to take this seriously. So what do you think? Think it's possible? Think it could happen? We have a new video over at TomHartman.com that uh, centers around this clip from 1978. The energy crisis is real. It is worldwide. It is a clear and present danger to our nation. These are facts, and we simply must face them. What I have to say to you now about energy is simple and vitally important. Point one, I am tonight setting a clear goal for the energy policy of the United States. Beginning this moment, this nation will never use more foreign oil than we did in 1977. Never. And he continues. Moreover, I will soon submit legislation to Congress calling for the creation of this nation's first solar bank which will help us achieve the crucial goal of 20% of our energy coming from solar power by the year 2000. What could have been, huh? Check it out at TomHartman.com. Hey, I do want to call your attention to my piece today over at HarbaudReport.com about this whole power situation. I tell the story about in 1986, when Louise and I and our three kids moved to, to West Germany, the week after Chernobyl, well, two weeks after Chernobyl, and melted down, and what it was like living in that country, and why Germany has so loudly said, no more nuclear power, and why they're shutting down their last nuke next year. Now, they got a little ahead of their skis, and they're having to import some natural gas to make up for the, for the weaknesses here. And part of it was local utilities, and part of it was, you know, for-profit utilities that didn't like what's going on, and part of it was that, you know, uh, regional politics got into it. You've got some of the northern Germany um, uh, districts that are just as bright red as Texas is, and, you know, they're not all enthusiastic about power to the people kind of thing. But, you know, it, it's still doable here in the United States. It really is. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Arguably the biggest defeat, probably short of losing his casinos. I mean, who can't run a casino profitably? Has this ever happened in the history of the world? Well, yeah, Donald Trump couldn't. But outside of that, probably the biggest defeat Donald Trump has experienced in his career as a grifter uh, was Trump University. And the guy who brought him down is on the line with us right now, Art Cohen. He's an entrepreneur, former student at, uh, at Trump University. He's the author with Dan Good of the new book, Trump You, Promises, Lies, and Corruption, My Battle with Donald Trump's Fake University. Art Cohen Author, C-O-H-E-N, author.com is the website. Art Cohen Author is also his Twitter handle. Art, welcome to the program. Congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, and congratulations both on, on you know bringing down Trump's scam and saving thousands of other people from losing their money like you like you did, and on publishing this brilliant book about it. So, first of all, you filed a RICO suit against Donald Trump. I didn't know that individuals could even file RICO suits. I thought that's something that required a state attorney general. This is a racketeering influenced corrupt organization. Isn't that what RICO stands for? And if so, you know, fill us in on how that worked. Yeah, sure, sure thing. Uh, absolutely, that's what it stands for. It's a civil suit. Uh, what you're talking about normally that's filed by the state is usually a criminal. So ah. we were filing a civil suit because my fiduciary duty was to get as much money back of the students that they had put in. At the end of the day, we got back 90 cents on the dollar. Wow. So we got most of the money back to all the students. It was over 6,000 of them. The climate of it all is how long it took. It didn't have to take so long. How long did it take? Uh, but the, it took, uh, well, we filed the suit in 2013. The actual money went into people's pockets six years later, uh, roughly well, five years later in April of 2018. And then again, additional pot was uh, let go in January 2019. So when you filed this lawsuit, Donald Trump was simply the guy, the go-to guy on national media to talk about how Barack Obama wasn't a real, a real American. He was a secret Muslim Kenyan. That's right. And when I signed up for Trump University in 2009, he was a real estate master and he was somebody that uh, looked like something that uh, was a worthwhile investment. I mean, some... Um, uh, would say that I invested more in Trump, almost $40,000 into his program, believing in what he said. Unfortunately, it was all promises, lies, and quite a bit of corruption, as I learned from after filing the suit itself. Did you learn anything from Trump University? I mean, did they, was there anything actually useful or meaningful that you got out of the time that you were there? And if so, I'm curious what it might be. Well, I, I learned something about in the process. I learned in suing him going through the justice system and how difficult it was uh, to get justice because of the constant delays uh, throughout the process. Yeah. Uh, so the main also, thing you learned was how to sue him. Okay. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Yes. Yes. That was, that is true. Uh, but I also learned the, the, the justice system itself, um, how it favors those 
uh, with uh, incredible amounts of money, those are the wealthy. Sure. So uh, we were in a unique position working with a uh, law firm, Robin Gellers and Dodd, that, uh, and another, actually two law firms we were working with uh, that were uh, on our behalf of all the students as a class action suit. And as such, we had a tremendous uh, advantage because our law firm uh, had the pockets, the deep pockets, uh, to uh, withstand the constant uh, 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 objections uh, to even bring forward an expert witness. We would bring forward an expert witness. They would object to that witness. The court would rule in our favor after a hearing. And then after the hearing, they would then appeal it. Then we'd have to respond to that appeal, so forth and so on. This is why it took so long. So it was sitting in Judge Coriel's court. Probably it was, it was actually he said it was the, uh, except for one case, it was the longest uh, case that was sitting in his court. Well, this has been his strategy throughout his career is just drag it on and drag it on and drain people of their resources, hiring their lawyers. It's, 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 it's pretty crazy. You wrote that uh, Trump expects his lawyers and underlings to do everything he asks, including breaking the law. And right. uh, tell us about that. Well, you know, I, I uh, attended the actual his actual deposition uh, as a lead plaintiff. Um, I was a party. So I was at the deposition remotely on December 10th, 2015. And during that deposition, um, there was a break and he left the room uh, along with his attorney, came back in. There were still other people in the room, but un uh, unbeknownst to him, he started talking to his attorney about different things and the mic was hot. And during that period of time, he told his attorney, and this is in the book, and, 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 and the full um, and, and, and there's a full transcript of that entire discussion in the book. But one of the key parts of that was he goes to him and he says, talk to the judge or talk to him about that thing about him. What's that thing? To this day, we don't know what that thing is. But so he had blackmail know, on the judge? It, it, it was implied in that speech. Yes. Wow. Wow. And and this is and, and so, you know, this scared the heck out of me at the time, as you can imagine. And uh, there were some attorney confidential conversations about this matter. And uh, but we believe that the judge was beyond reproach. But what did happen in May of 2016? We had a hearing and during that hearing, Trump's attorneys argued that he can't go to trial in August. We had an August set trial date. And now, could you imagine if the trial actually happened in August of 2016? He would have been tied up for at least with all the witnesses for at least two months, August, September, maybe October. That would have uh, potentially derailed or certainly made it difficult uh, to run his campaign. Well, that's not my opinion. That's what his attorney argued in court. Wow. His attorney argued he cannot continue his campaign if he if we have a trial in august we need to delay the trial well the court came back and gave a ruling and did delay the trial till after the election in november saying oh it'll be easier on the jury it's going to be a circus and so forth 
common sense tells you it's you're not going to it's not going to be easier to pick a jury after an election whether he won or lost than it was before an election plus we as a public had a right to know the fraud that he was committing and his financial background that all would have been brought out during the Trump University trial. Right. So Judge Curiel, the guy that Trump slandered later, you know, calling him a Mexican judge and all this stuff. I mean, he was born in Ohio, as I recall. But he actually cut Trump some slack. He was he was not a partisan actor in this thing. He was just being a judge who was doing what he thought was the best way to be a judge. Is that is that your characterization of him, your understanding? That's correct. Judge Coriel was doing his job, and uh, Trump was attacking him in the public. And unfortunately, the court, as you know, does not respond to that. They just handle everything within the court. And I did not go out in the public because I was instructed not to. It was not in the best interest of the students. It was my fiduciary responsibility to get the money back for the students. Right. It wasn't my, you know, I wasn't to go out to the public and start talking to the press at that time. You also write in your book, we're talking with uh, Art Cohen. He's got a new book out called Trump U, Y-O-U, Promises, Lies, and Corruption, My Battle with Donald Trump's Fake University. In the book, you write about uh, Alan Weisselberg, the guy who's kind of at the center of everything right now, the guy that if he flips, Trump is screwed. And if he doesn't flip, he or his children may go to prison. Uh, tell us about Alan Weisselberg's role in all this. Well, you know, he was acting CFO for the uh, Trump University uh, firm. So as such, when we were going through the depositions in June of uh, 20, uh, I believe it was 2015, we uh, deposed Alan Weisselberg. And what you'll find in the book on chapter, what, what was remarkable about that deposition that we didn't know today is that, um, or we didn't know until today, is that he made certain statements that said that Trump was in control of all his actions with regards to the financial matters. Now, not just matters related to Trump University, but matters related to all financial matters. And that's how the question was asked, asked by my attorney. Mm-hmm. So this deposition uh, has been, it was, I believe, filed with the court, uh, and certainly there's uh, certain uh, tra- uh, transcripts that are out there that are related to it, um, but it's never been really published anywhere, and I believe implicates Trump because if you have Alan Weisselberg saying that everything I did was with the knowledge and direction of Donald Trump with regards to financial matters and investment matters, and he's going out and cheating on taxes and doing these other things, and Mr. Weisselberg is indicted, then why is Donald Trump not indicted? Donald Trump should be indicted now. So, as such, just recently, and this is a little bit of news, I sent those papers, those documents, to the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. James, Yep. And also to Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA. So those should be arriving on their desks in the next couple of days. Oh, interesting. Because they're both going yeah. after Weisselberg, and, and based on Weisselberg's testimony under oath in your deposition, anything that they go after him for, they should be going after Trump for. That's correct. And everything like that and everything else in my book is corroborated in a notes section. So I tell you where to find that documentation, but I will tell you that it was not easy to find. It was buried in a brief that one of my attorneys filed, Jason Forge, he filed it. And when he filed that brief, 
in there, he references the deposition and parts of that deposition, which are in the book. So that's what you're reading there. And that's what I forwarded to the AG. Absolutely fascinating. Art Cohen, he's got a new book out called Trump You, Y-O-U, Promises, Lies, and Corruption, My Battle with Donald Trump's Fake University. And it's brilliant. Yeah, Art, keep up the great work. And thanks for dropping by today and sharing it with us. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I hope the book does really well. And I hope that uh, Donald Trump can eventually be held accountable in larger venues. Thank you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So what's going to happen with Big Bird and the Muppets? Are, you know, is Ted Cruz going to take them down? Is this the end of, <laughs> is this the end of PBS? I, I somehow doubt it. Will we get rooftop solar all across the United States? It's not explicitly in the program, but I think a lot of the preparation for it could be built in there and we could use this BIF program as a, as a lobbying tool. And do you think that the, uh, the next time in 2024, we're going we're gonna to be confronting the Claremont Institute's uh, uh, apparent, uh, or at least one of their people, uh, apparent fantasy of, uh, you know, basically a, a government to coup. So, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot to discuss here. Uh, the CDC, by the way, just came out and said 58.4% uh, of America is fully vaccinated. Uh, that would be, that would include kids and everything. So that, that's pretty good. But we've got a long way to go, of course. It's uh, mostly in, in blue states. So picking up your phone calls, Chris in Littleton, Colorado. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi, Tom. About 25% of the carbon in the U.S. comes from home heating and air conditioning. Right. And there's over a million homes built in the U.S. every year. Most are a bare minimum 20 to 30% efficient. Green energy homes, energy star homes, and passively Conditioned homes all can get like 60 or 70 percent energy efficiency. Why doesn't the government require all homes to be built to these standards? Good question, reduce, Chris. Yeah, I would reduce a, a bunch of the carbon. It would reduce pollution and it would give homeowners savings on their utility bills to stimulate the economy. Yeah. And reduce dependence on the central power grid. Well, you know, I'm guessing that the government doesn't mandate it because they're wary of doing mandates. But one way around that would be to uh, do it the way that they do on appliances, which is to require the, the one thing they could mandate is that homes uh, that are for sale have an energy rating and that that rating projects how much money on heating at, at the current price of electricity, gas, oil, whatever the heating source may be for that house. Uh, project that out over a 10-year period. So when you look at it, buying a house, it would say, uh, this house is uh, rated 37% efficient, which means that uh, you will be paying you know, uh, an extra 
$12,610 over the next 10 years in heating costs compared to if it was uh, the recommended standard is 60% efficient, something like that. That would actually, you know, there you'd have a, a so-called free market <laughs> variable, right? That would be something that would uh, encourage people to make the right decision. So yeah, and if the climate crisis is not a big enough emergency to require that, I'm not sure what is. Well, having people save money is always going to outweigh the climate crisis, at least over the short term, and things until things get really, really bad, which is why I would you know suggest doing it like that. But yeah, yeah, we'll see. Uh, Go ahead. In the long run, the cost of preventing climate change is far, far less than paying for the climate disaster that we'll have to pay if they don't do measures like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm absolutely with you on that. Thank you, Chris. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind? Hey, not too much, Tom. Look, I just wanted to say that it, it is more likely going to work. Uh, Trump's... Um, what's going to work? You know, and his, his, his minions are going to push to turn America into an autocratic state. Okay, and, it, and it's pretty obvious. Look, they don't really look at it the way we do. All right, uh, for years now, and I brought this up before, and you know, you just you just uh, said, yeah, they, they do this. For years now, they go on like PBS, uh, people, they, they call themselves conservative, but they don't call themselves Republican. And they push this, this idea that we, the general population of America, we lack the faculty to really vote competently. All right, only really the wealthy and the educated. Some say there's a racial component, white people. I mean, I agree with that. I don't want to put that down. I mean, that's, that's entirely likely. But they believe that we, we don't know our best interests. We don't have agency. So, no, as the Republicans are saying that in, in, unless you are white and well-educated and wealthy, you can't make a good decision as a voter. Right. And, 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 and a good and decision, of course, is the decisions that will support the white, the existing white supremacy power structure. Yeah. So well, what's your point, Dave? To, well, it goes back to Eastman. Eastman says, um, you know, basically what he's saying, if, if, if an elector does not support Donald Trump, then they are a faithless elector. Okay, mm. that's that's essentially what he's saying, yeah. and I mean, you know, if you boil it down, and and really, uh, Ortega just gave a shout out. Daniel Ortega, who arrested all his political opponents, yeah, all right, just gave a shout out to the January six uh, protesters or whatever, <laughs> insurrectionists, whatever, Whoa. and. Yes, and the bottom line is, is this is all these authoritarian, all right, authoritarianism at its core believes this. They believe that Republican democracy, like we have, impedes human achievement. All right, that's a big, big concept, right? And, and the idea, and, and, and the bottom line is, is China, Russia, uh, everyone in between them and, and Nicaragua, uh, they're all going to push to support Donald Trump, and I really don't, or a Trump acolyte. Yeah, it's, really it's the new authoritarian world order. I mean, this is this is what they're working to create. I, I agree with you, Dave. I, I absolutely agree with you. Thank you very much. Pete in Los Angeles. Hey, Pete, what's on your mind today? <clears throat> well, everybody's pretty much spelling out what I've uh, predicted anyway, which is <clears throat> they're saying, like, the Republicans are going to take the House, and then they're going to decide the election in 24. They're going to Republican president. They'll rewrite the Constitution. <clears throat> And uh, what, what I fear is that Christian conservatives will get a hold of the nuclear weapons. Boom. They will launch them because they want the world to end. So it's just like the song says, it's the end of the world as we know it. Yeah. 
Hashtag, hashtag goodbye globe. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not so worried about Christian conservatives getting nukes, but I am concerned about how they have taken over the, the Republican Party. And, the, and we're talking a doomsday cult here. You know, by and large, we're talking groups of people who think that the world has to end for Jesus to return. Millions and millions of billions of people have to die. Uh, all but 144,000 Jews in Israel have to die and they have to convert to Christianity. I mean, this is this is like, you know, relatively mainstream stuff now, uh, certainly in the evangelical community. And uh, it's it's toxic. I'm with you, Pete. Thank you. Max in Santa Cruz, California. Hey, Max, what's up? Uh, yeah, two parts to this question. What's going on? First of all, um, your question about solar homes and, and infrastructure in that way. Uh, I work in that field for a mm-hmm. long time when it comes to home home design and home efficiency. I'm going to say two things. One, Obama changed the rules to make it cheaper for China to produce these solar panels, which is destroying the ability for people in America to make money off of this. Micro, micro uh, grids is basically the way everybody does their housing when they do solar. Mm-hmm. It's all rooftop power supply. Whether you grid tie it or not is the difference. Most people don't usually have a wind backup. Or something else, they should do that. I mean, it, that's how yeah. that's how solar is set up. It's well, that's all how microgrid. it works in Germany. Is you know everybody that's how it works in America. Yeah, that's how it works in America. Yeah. So this is my this is my thing. And the other guy was talking about um, efficiency of the homes. Yes, it's because of the materials they build with it's particle board and crap. There's something people should look into called aerocrete. It's basically concrete aerized that has a high insulation factor. It's really cheap and easy to build with. <laughs> Second of all, I want to bring apart. Your guys' uh, narrative. What happened with Ivan Vajenko and the Steele dossier? It's now been proven that Hillary Clinton made up these lies and utilized the FISA court to come up with false allegations about Trump. This is now. Okay, Max, I'm going to cut you off right there because I frankly have no interest in that. And I, I think it's nonsense. Chris in San Diego. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I moved from Seattle to. San Diego to do exactly what you're talking about. The company I work for, we put solar panels on people's homes. Uh, They don't pay for the panels. They don't pay for the installation. They don't pay for maintenance. They just pay for the electricity that it produces. SDG&E is one of the highest cost markets in the country. So we save them. Their rates are, most people here are paying between 36 and 40 cents per kilowatt. Our rates are between... 16 and 25 and so as we walk it yeah as we walk in the door they turn on the power it saves them 40 percent we also lock it in at 2.9 percent so it cannot raise any higher than that right we've talked about this before chris basically you guys own you're 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 building power plants on people's in in people's houses and then renting the power to them and you're making your profit on the difference between the cost to put up the plant and the and the money that you can make renting to them and everybody wins i mean you know you've got a a, a business that's being maintained and people get it at no cost is anybody doing this in any other state yes we are in 23 states we're not in portland or sorry oregon yet or washington uh, we are expanding. We're getting out there. We just got into Texas last year. Wow. So we are in 23 states. Um, but when you get to Oregon, yeah. give me a shout. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, so well, what's the website, I Chris? Put out an email address for people to reach me? Yeah, sure. Or, or yeah. a website would be better, but whatever you'd like. Okay, well, I'm, I'm chris.green, number one, with the number one. So chris.green, number one, at sunrun.com, or they can go to sunrun.com. Dot com. We're the now the largest uh, 
solar provider in the country and we are is that s-u-n-r-u-n.com yes sir uh-huh cool cool well yeah. good on you yeah well, I, I, yeah like i said i moved here for that purpose i was like hey here's my little part that i can help to you know make the environment better yeah so thank uh, you, Tom. that's marvelous chris keep up the great work I mean, this is there is so much opportunity here. Why is it that only fossil fuel billionaires get to make money supplying electricity to people? Right. Why is it that only big giant utilities that are owned by billionaires can can, you know, here's an opportunity. We need to take it. Jay in San Francisco. Hey, Jay, what's on your mind today? Hi, um, my name's JP. I am the president of the nonprofit Safe Standard Time. One of our supporters suggested I give you a call to talk about the uh, efforts uh, to uh, stop clock changes, but to go in the wrong direction on the permanent daylight saving time. Yeah, we've got about a dozen states now that have said, yeah, let's stop changing the clocks, but let's keep it with daylight savings time which is going to be really tough for those of us who get up early, particularly in the northern latitudes. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a bad idea. It's, it's against the advice of medical doctors and health scientists, biologists, uh, researchers who really have studied this for decades of their lives. Uh, the, the experts for health, safety, and education all say that we should stop changing clocks, but we should go to permanent standard time, the actual time that's defined from the sun in the sky, not permanent daylight saving time, which is designed to force us to get up earlier in the morning so that we can spend more money shopping in the evening. That's the wrong way to go. Well, and it was it, it was uh, a couple of guys, uh, you know, who who were golf aficionados who started the whole the whole uh, daylight savings time thing, wasn't it? Yes, they wanted to be able to play <laughs> golf was, later in the day. It was sold as an energy saving scam, and that that's never been the fact. Um, right. It actually consumes more energy to have people waking up and they turn their heat on in the morning. And right. um, so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's so it's, we've got here. We've got it's a trick to sell golf games. In in 2018, Florida and California authorized year-round daylight savings time. California has not uh, that legislation is still pending, but Florida approved it. In 2019, it was Arkansas, Delaware, Maine, Oregon, Tennessee, and Washington full-time daylight savings time. In 2020, it was Idaho, Louisiana, Ohio, South Carolina, Utah, and Wyoming. And in 2021, Alabama, Georgia, Minnesota, Mississippi, and Montana. 19 states now have said, we want year-round daylight savings time. Why would anybody want that rather than year-round standard time? Yes. So Who's pushing this train? With my nonprofit, Safe Standard Time, we've been following this. Um, we got started in 2019 in response to what was happening in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started in Florida, as you mentioned, 2018. And uh, California voted to end clock change, but we didn't mandate which way to go. And there was some sneaky business, a switcheroo that occurred in Georgia earlier this year. They were, they were starting to go toward permanent standard time. And then in the night, it changed to permanent DST again. Um, Is this like uh, golf courses pushing this? I mean, who's pushing this? Marco, so yes, Senator Marco Rubio down in Florida um, has the support of the Florida Chamber of Commerce in this. And they see that uh, they can increase, um, you know, rounds of golf and and shopping, uh, tourism, you know, recreation parks, Mm -hmm. these sorts of things. So it's 
It's coming from Florida. So, and, so uh, the, 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 the calculation here is that longer evenings will mean more revenue for business, but you're going to have people more bleary-eyed in the morning. Yes. So I've been testifying in these hearings starting earlier this year. I'm out there trying to present the view of scientists and doctors and teachers that this is a bad idea. It's the wrong direction. They're coming in and talking about that they want to sell more golf and shopping. Right. I get it. Jay, give us the the website again. Savestandardtime.com. Savestandardtime.com. I'm with you. Yes. Consider me an endorser. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot for the call. Debbie in Sylvania, Ohio. You've got a little bit of history about daylight savings time that I had forgotten. Lay it on us. Disclaimer, my dad was a golf pro, so grew up playing golf. The idea did not originate with golfers. It originated with Ben Franklin. Thank you. You're right. We wrote an about the economic impact of it, and then there was the New, Ze- New Zealand entomologist who suggested the two-hour time change so he could catch more bugs. That yeah. was the norm. 18th century. Yeah, but, but Franklin's was to, uh, it was to help farmers, wasn't it? Um, yes. Like, yes, the, like exactly. the farmer who called earlier? Yeah. yeah just okay. Was I had um, completely and, forgotten that. Yeah, it became law in the United States for the first time during um, World War One, And you, you know the history from there. Kind of came, it's kind of come and gone yeah. for a long time. So I'm with you. We don't need to keep changing. But, um, yeah, I had to call because of the golf thing. So. Okay. Well, it actually, if you if you Google it, Debbie, there's there's a couple of really great stories from a decade or so ago, but they still float around the internet about how the guys who actually pushed the legislation were golfers. And I can and I can um, see how that that would be because there's probably more money to be made on people playing golf late in the day than yep. you know at 6 a.m. Yep. <laughs> so yep. I'm sure but I wanted to give Ben Franklin credit where credit was due. So Amen. thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot, Debbie. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind? Hey, not too much, Tom. Hey, I was thinking about this John Eastman, and you mentioned the Washington Post articles about January 6th. And um, I, believe me, it is hard. It is difficult. All right, it is difficult to get people to accept the fact that there it was a coup attempt or an auto coup, or they're using this other term now—not counter coup, but uh, I don't know. The media is using another term because it's hard to wrap our minds around something like that could happen in the United States. But I think calling it a riot or, or um, you know deflecting anything about what it really is is dangerous i mean a lot of times this is treason it was treason yeah this is an attempt to overthrow the government of the united states that that's treason this and and at the very least it's sedition and we should we should not tolerate it and it was and it was guided and inspired and promoted and continues to be to this day by donald trump and he's surrounded himself with a merry band of neo-fascists who want to see the american form of government fall and, you know, Steve Bannon and his buddies at the front of that line, uh, you know, the, the grifter who, who was ripping off people with the so-called, uh, you know, build the wall thing where he, he was, you know, funneling money into his own damn pockets. And, and it's just, I, I, I think it's just, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. Dave, thank you for the call. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Thank you.